We're really pleased uh, tonight. This is a first for us. This is our first ever one-man show. Uh, but it's also an evening we've been looking for a long time. Last fall, Eric Liu came on board as a fellow at the Center for Social Cohesion at ASU. He's been talking with people around the country about being an American citizen, what being an American citizen means to them, collecting stories and reflecting on his own, uh, all leading up to tonight's program. Mr. Eric Liu is an author, educated, and, and civic entrepreneur. He's a former White House speechwriter and advisor for President Bill Clinton. His books include The Accidental Asian and most recently The Gardens of Democracy, which he co-authored. In addition to being a fellow at the Center for Social Cohesion, he's a columnist for Time.com and the founder of Citizen University and True Patriot Network. I now present Citizen Who. today I need to place you all under oath. Please rise and raise your right hand. The following is the United States naturalization oath. Please repeat after me. I hereby declare an oath. I hereby declare an oath. That I absolutely and entirely that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty to any foreign prince, potentate, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or a citizen of whom or for which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. That I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States of America. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same. That I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law. That I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law. That I will perform non-combatant service in the armed forces of the United States when required by law. That I will perform non-combatant service in the armed services of the United States when required by law. That I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law. That I will perform work of national importance under civilian direction when required by law. And that I take this obligation freely. And that I take this obligation freely. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. Without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. So help me God. So help me God. You may be seated. What did we just do? To whom did we just make that promise? Together, we just swore an oath, the same oath that naturalizing immigrants declare when they become citizens of the United States. If that felt a little uncomfortable or unnecessary, or odd to you, 
it's worth asking why. Why does that language seem so foreign and ill-fitting to us? Over the course of the last year, I've been on a journey in search of the meaning of citizenship. My travels have taken me all across this country, from California to the New York Islands, from the Redwood Forest to the Gulf Stream waters. I've been to precincts of power and to places of great privation. I've spent time with artists, politicians, soldiers, seekers, dreamers of all kinds. And what I've learned is this. Our citizenship is a simple contradiction. It commands our loyalty, it demands it, and yet it was created by people, our founders, who renounced all prior loyalties. It is central to our constitutional scheme, and yet nowhere in the Constitution or in our laws is citizenship ever affirmatively defined. We know there's a status called citizen, but we're not so sure what that status contains and how to claim it. Our work, our work is to search for the meaning of citizenship. It is indeed a journey we are on perpetually. We make citizenship by searching for it. We make it come true by believing in it. In any migration, whether of a new American or an old American newly awake, there's typically an arc to the journey. That journey begins with a dream. And then there's a thrill and the shock of arrival. Inevitably, though, there's betrayal of the dream and of its promise. But soon, in fits and starts, there is redemption. And it is the promise and the possibility of final redemption of that dream that reanimates it for another generation. These are the elements of our journey. Dream, arrival, redemption, betrayal, dream. The American dream. Is there a more cliché cliché? Not even a month after a national election, we're all sick and tired of hearing that phrase. And yet, and yet it still compels. It still captures our imagination. In this land that has no bonds of blood, that has no great creation myths of swords being pulled out of stones to hold us together, all we have is a dream. A dream of becoming American and belonging. It is a dream of freedom, a dream of yearning, and it is a dream preciously ill-defined. When I was a boy, I dreamed strange dreams. I dreamed hybrid dreams that were Chinese-American dreams. I grew up looking up to somebody great, literally looking up to him. On the shelf in the study of my parents' home was a black-and-white photograph of an officer in the nationalist Chinese military. He was a general. He was my grandfather. I never knew him, but I knew this much about him. He'd been born in Hunan Province, China. He'd made his way to Huangpu Military Academy. He'd become a pilot. He fought first the Japanese, and then later the Communist Chinese. He helped create the Flying Tigers, working with Americans like Stilwell and Chenault. And he later would become the first chief of staff of the first Air Force of the First Republic of China. His name was Liu Guoyun. Liu, my family name. Guoyun, meaning deliverance of the nation. No pressure. <laughs> when I was a boy, I would wonder sometimes, what would it be like to deliver a nation? And then I'd have to ask, which nation? I knew I was Chinese, and I knew I was American, but I did not yet know how to distinguish between the two. With stories of my grandfather fueling my imagination, I imagined myself to be a flying tiger. And later on, I imagined myself being one of the famous black sheep squadron of Marine Corps pilots in the Pacific War, fighting the Japanese. I dreamed of getting into dogfights with Japanese zeros high over the Solomon Islands and Guadalcanal. I dreamed of killing Japs. I dreamed of racking up little Japanese flags to paint on the side of my blue Corsair fuselage for every Jap that I killed. It wasn't until years later when I learned about how after Pearl Harbor, many Chinese Americans took nervously to wearing buttons that proclaimed Chinese, not Japanese, that I realized just how absurd my youthful self-concept had been. The good Asian, the loyal Asian. But at the time in my childhood, it seemed not cringeworthy, but positively providential that I could be both Chinese and American 
and could merge these identities, that they should have the same goal, the same destiny, the same enemy. Around the time the flying tigers and the black sheep were fighting the Pacific War, a teenage girl named Gerda Weissman was being delivered via the trains of the Third Reich from her hometown in Poland to the work camps of Czechoslovakia. Her parents had already been delivered to Auschwitz. And Gerda alone survived the unspeakable horrors of the Holocaust by dreaming, by finding and focusing her imagination into something hard and real. She dreamed of freedom in all of its vivid particulars. She dreamed of dinner parties. She dreamed of one day becoming a writer and a storyteller. She dreamed of great dances she would go to and dreamed of deciding whether to wear the red velvet dress or the blue velvet dress. At war's end, Gerda Weissman weighed 68 pounds. She had not had a bath in three years. Her hair had turned completely white. She was liberated by an American GI named Kurt Klein. Kurt Klein had been born in Germany. His parents were Jews, and they too had been sent to Auschwitz. But he had made it to America and made it back to Germany to fight for America. And when Kurt Klein met Gerda Weissman, what he did for her was to hold a door open for her in those camps, making her human once again. What neither Kurt nor Gerda could know was that within a year, the two would be wed, and that they would begin a life together in the United States, a life that was both extraordinary and extraordinarily ordinary. It was extraordinary in the sense that Gerda Weissman Klein, when she came to the United States, did become that writer she dreamed of being. She wrote a best-selling memoir called All But My Life, Documentaries were made about her life. In senior citizenship, late in her life, she founded an organization called Citizenship Counts. But her life was ordinary as well, in that it focused mainly on the simple pleasures of freedom that she had dreamed of. As she says, she didn't cure cancer. She wasn't Mother Teresa. She did no great historical deeds. All she did was live an American life. She raised children. She raised grandchildren. She raised a family. Today, Gerda Weissman Klein and I are like family. She calls me her adopted grandson, and she refuses to let me call her Mrs. Klein, insisting that I address her as grandma. And though we speak the different idioms of different generations from different life experiences, both of us in our work today are asking fundamentally the same questions. What is the content of our citizenship? Citizenship counts. But what counts as citizenship? Our citizenship is this wild, contradictory dream. And today, in adulthood, when I dream of it, I dream of Lincoln, but I dream also of the internment camps. I dream of Martin Luther King. I dream of Dred Scott. I dream of the Dream Act activists, young people today, undocumented immigrants, seeking a path to citizenship by serving in the military or going to college. I dream also of the countless other undocumented immigrants still living and lurking in the shadows and on the margins. Who is it that is going to deliver this nation? Who is it that is going to weave these stories, these lives, yours and mine, my grandfather, my adopted grandmother, into one great vessel? It is a dream of surpassing ambition. You will now be asked questions from the history and civics portion of your naturalization test. The history and civics questions will be asked orally and answered orally. Due to the size of our group, please indicate your desire to answer on behalf of the group by raising your hand. <laughs> Under some circumstances, you will be asked to discuss answers with those seated around you. This is also a test of your ability to speak English. Please adhere to all time guidelines. Question one, who was the first president? Yes, ma'am. George Washington. Thank you, that is correct. Question two, what is one right or freedom from the First Amendment? Um, yes, please. Freedom of speech. Thank you, that is an allowable answer. <laughs> Please discuss the following question with those around you. You will have one minute. Question three, what is the rule of law? You may begin. 
In the American imagination, Ellis Island is a point of deep disembarkation that is mystical and almost magical. It's like a portal in a dream, rich with symbolic meaning. It conjures up sepia scenes like those of the opening of Godfather II, where huddled masses, including young Vito Andolini, gaze in wonder at Lady Liberty as their ship glides past. Young Vito having fled the murderers of his parents in Corleone, Sicily, arrives at Ellis Island and is promptly told by the man greeting him there that his name is now Vito Corleone. And so Vito Corleone begins to make himself, to become self-made, rugged and ragged, from ragged to rich. My mother was 21 when she came to the United States, and when her ship pulled up in the port of Baltimore, she had almost no money, a small bag of clothes. She found the scene completely bewildering and disorienting. There was nobody there to greet her. But what I didn't tell you, this, what I didn't tell you was this. When my mother, by her wits and determination, landed in Baltimore, she was able to make her way to New York. She was able to find one small job and then another. And then by her own hard work, she became capable of going to college. Now, there's another way to tell this story. When my mother came to the United States, she was already a college graduate, a graduate of Taiwan University. She had no money on her because at a port call in Tokyo on her way here, she'd bought a fancy expensive camera on the idea that she would sell it in the U.S. for a profit. Nobody greeted her at the port immediately, but eventually somebody picked her up. It was a friend of the family one of the former students of her father, a professor at Taiwan University. And in every job my mother had, somebody helped clear a path for her. Someone looked out for her. In one of her early jobs at a Manhattan coffee company called Chock Full of Nuts, my mother became a file clerk. She was shy and scared and kept to herself, but she would bump into from time to time a kindly older black executive named Mr. Robinson. And Mr. Robinson and his secretary made sure nobody treated her wrong. They gave her jobs. They told her to do things of great responsibility, like pass out the paychecks every week. And whenever she would see Mr. Robinson, he had a kind word for her. It wasn't until years later, after she'd left that company, that she learned that Mr. Robinson's name was Jackie. Scared, lonely, young immigrant, destined to live on the margins, or proud new American, touched by a mythic American, destined to claim this country as her own. Like I said, arrival stories can be told many ways. When I was just a couple of years younger than my mother was when she came to the U.S., I had my own form of arrival. On a hot summer night in rural Virginia, I got pushed out of a bus into a scene of absolute chaos. Great, big, tall men 
surrounded me and swarmed around me, screaming at me, yelling me to do this, to do that, to pick up this, pick up that. In the shuffle, I lost my own bag of clothes. But I was there by choice. I had quite voluntarily decided to come to Quantico, Virginia, to join the United States Marine Corps. For six weeks the summer after my sophomore year of college, and six more weeks the next summer, I was a candidate at Officer Candidate School. At OCS, I assimilated myself to a tradition, to a set of rituals and colors and songs. I absorbed an Anglo-American naval lexicon in which the floor was called a deck, doors were called portals, windows were called portholes, the right side was called starboard. I absorbed this language and this lexicon as if it were my very own. I did so because I was there to prove something. I was a little guy, an Asian guy, an Ivy League guy, a guy with glasses. And indeed, during the first few weeks of interminable hazing, that was my name, glasses. As in, glasses, get over here, glasses. Glasses, what the hell are you doing? Glasses. But after those first few weeks, one thing I realized was I could do this. I made my way through. And there was one day toward the end of my first summer when I was striding across the asphalt parade deck there at OCS on my way back to the barracks. I was walking alone, not in formation, but still keeping my crisp marine bearing as I walked. And as I moved, suddenly from across the way, someone shouted at me, General Lou! I stopped in my tracks and looked around. It was one of the drill instructors. He and another of the drill instructors were sitting there laughing at me. Look at him go, he thinks he's a general already, General Lou. I paused and smiled nervously and took my measure of the moment. And I realized they weren't mocking me as an outsider. They were ribbing me as an insider. General Lou, I like the sound of that. And I realized in that moment I had arrived. Of course, not all arrival stories are so triumphal or self-satisfied. Mark Massey, a white evangelical Christian in Oklahoma, would soon learn this. Massey was a lay minister at his roadside Pentecostal church in Tulsa. And one Sunday, as services were ending, he saw two brown-skinned South Asian men creep into the church. They looked around nervously and sat in the rear pews. He caught their eye. And when services ended, he went over to talk to them. These two men had come all the way from across the street at a factory called the Pickle Steel Factory. But before that, they'd come all the way from halfway around the world, from India. They'd come here, they told him in their broken English, in search of work. They were brought here as guest workers, promised good wages and an opportunity to make a living. What they got was something else altogether. And as Mark Massey listened to their harrowing story, and listen to them share what it was that had brought him here, he realized that he too was about to embark on a journey. As it turns out, I didn't go into the Marine Corps. After I graduated from college, I declined my second lieutenant's commission and instead chose to go into government. And my first job in government was for a United States Senator named David Boren, Democrat of Oklahoma. Working for Senator Boren, I came to learn about and to love the law. I came to learn about the Constitution, to revere the 14th Amendment and its promise of equal protection of the laws. I also came to know almost every corner of the Sooner State, Oklahoma City, Fort Lawton, Chickasha, Seminole, and Tulsa. Moving around Tulsa like some young big shot, conscious of the fact that I stood out in that white prairie land, but secure still in the status that my boss conferred upon me, it's possible, it's possible I drove right past that factory in that roadside church. It's possible I drove right down that road without seeing the worlds on either side of me. You may continue to indicate your desire to answer by raising your hand. Question four. Who lived in America before the Europeans arrived? Yes, please. The Indians. Thank you, that is an allowable answer. <laughs> Question five, where is the Statue of Liberty? Yes, they're in the front row. Uh, New York. That is correct, thank you very much. 
Please discuss question six with those around you. You will have one minute. Name one right that is only for U.S. citizens. You may begin. It's the late 1990s now, nearly 40 years after my mother has arrived in the United States, more than 20 years since she's become naturalized as a U.S. citizen, and more than a few years since my father has died. She has painstakingly reconstructed her life. She's worked all throughout, and she's managed to convert a mid-level job at IBM into the opportunity to work doing international business development in China for a great big defense contractor that acquired her part of IBM. But in order to do this work, she was going to have to get security clearances. She would have to take a lie detector test. My mother is earnest, utterly without pretense or guile. Somehow, she fails the lie detector test. She fails it again. Now the FBI starts asking questions. She takes it a third time and does not pass. Soon she cannot sleep. Her blood pressure goes up. It's never come down. Eventually, after more questions and more exams, my mother does pass that polygraph. She does get those security clearances, and she's allowed to do this work. But she's never told just why she was subject to so much scrutiny and what it was that she was presumed to have been hiding. Here's a clue. Around that same time, another American scientist from Taiwan also failed a polygraph. His name was Win Ho Lee. Win Ho Lee was a scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratories, a nuclear weapons research facility in New Mexico. Win Ho Lee was a quiet man, a little quirky. He was known to have many friends and relationships and contacts in China. And when it appeared that China might be making unexpected advances in their weapons design, someone got it in their head that Win Ho Lee was passing secrets to the Chinese. And suddenly, he found himself accused, accused of espionage. He was indicted. He was detained. And this small, frail, five-foot man was kept in solitary confinement 23 hours a day with shackles. I remember once being told by Norman Mineta, a former congressman and commerce secretary under both Presidents Clinton and President George W. Bush, about what it was like immediately after Pearl Harbor as he and his brother and thousands of others were rounded up to go to the internment camps. In that chaotic scene, perhaps not unlike the chaos of my arrival at OCS, Norm Mineta remembers one thing in particular. He remembers being presented with a form to fill out. It had two choices, alien and non-alien. And Norm thought, non-alien? What's that? Isn't that supposed to say citizen? One of the things that happens in times of doubt and fear and anxiety is that it becomes possible for us to slip as citizens into a murkier category called non-alien. And it's possible then from there to slip into another category called alien or other. As the internment was getting underway, Life magazine printed a very helpful guide called How to Tell the Japs from the Chinese. It was a two-page spread with two big pictures of two faces, detailed diagramming, purporting to show the differences. On the one side 
earthy yellow complexion, and the other parchment yellow complexion. Highbridge nose versus broader nose. Sometimes rosy-cheeked, never rosy-cheeked. Long, narrow faces, rounder, flatter faces. You know which is which, right? <laughs> this descent into the categories of non-alien and alien and other can come upon us suddenly. Just ask Wen-Ho Lee. He found himself suddenly and quickly under a siege, the subject of a media political conspiracy that tarnished his name, his reputation, and his career. What happened to my mother was not nearly so traumatic or public or destructive, and yet it was no less unnecessary and no less sad. My mother came to realize that as long as she would live in this country, so long as she had her face and her accent, she might always be presumed foreign until proven otherwise. Sometimes I marvel at the distance my mother has traveled in her life, from humble file clerk to somebody doing all this fancy international business development work. But after she retired, late in her American career, she came to realize that she didn't belong. She came to realize that she was not quite Chinese anymore and not quite yet American in between, perpetually. That space between can be killing. In the cold waters off San Francisco Bay, not far from Alcatraz, is another small outcropping of rock called Angel Island. On Angel Island is a clapboard prison constructed to execute a policy of Chinese exclusion. In 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act. And all the way up till 1940, Chinese emigrants arriving in San Francisco, were promptly brought to Angel Island, subject to often bizarre interroga interrogations, detained, and then usually deported. But they would languish there, sometimes for weeks, for months, even years. On the walls of that wooden and cement prison, those earnest Chinese emigrants began to carve Chinese characters, crude classical poetry, lamenting their limbo, as they stared out at San Francisco across the bay. Today is the last day of winter. Tomorrow morning is the vernal equinox. One year's prospects have changed to another. Sadness kills the person in the wooden building. Imagine trying to express that kind of pain and knowing that it might forever be lost in translation. That's how those men at Mark Massey's church felt. And as they told Mark their harrowing story, he realized there was no turning back. These two men and 50 others like them had been recruited by John Nash Pickle, owner of the Pickle Steel Company. He'd gone to India, to some of the poorest parts of that country, to pick these men one by one, skilled laborers all. He promised them good wages, a secure job, health insurance, the possibility of a green card and the chance to bring their families here. Instead, when they arrived and they pulled up at the factory in Oklahoma, they were met by Pickle's wife, who summarily took away their passports. And they soon came to realize that they weren't getting those passports back anytime soon. Even worse, they came to realize that what they had entered into was something perilously close to indentured servitude. Brutal working hours with no relief, no recourse. Anytime anybody tried to complain, that worker was deported to India. And so these two men, who had made their way across the street to Mark Massey's church, across a great gulf of imagining, were risking not just their livelihoods, but their lives. They were like their 20th century brethren on Angel Island, stuck not just in legal limbo, but stuck in time, displaced from a story that most Americans thought had long ago ended. We tell ourselves stories, we make laws out of those stories. We build institutions from those laws. The Chinese Exclusion Act was a structure of law that begat that structure of wood and stone on Angel Island. It was the culmination of decades of anti-Chinese violence, both physical and legal, fueled by white resentment of the cheap Chinese labor brought here to build our railroads and mine the mountains. When the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed, 
One of the most important things about it was that it did not give any American an opportunity, an opportunity to enter. And as the Chinese on Angel Island moved, laboring under this Chinese Exclusion Act, they realized that they were lost. And they realized that what they had entered into was something that was unprecedented in the annals of this republic. The Chinese Exclusion Act marked the first time in the history of the republic that we had banned an entire group by race from entering our shores and our territory, let alone becoming citizens. Now notice, I say we banned, to which you might rightly ask, who's we, Kimasabe? I say that a lot, we, we Americans. We Americans sent a man to the moon. We Americans won the Battle of Normandy. We Americans, after World War II, invented the great mass middle class. But we cuts both ways, doesn't it? We enslaved millions of African Americans and denied them citizenship. We besieged and beheaded tribe after tribe of Native Americans. We rounded up our Japanese neighbors in internment camps. We excluded the Chinese. That is to say, we excluded me. We hated me. We blamed me for all our troubles. That history of exclusion and scapegoating was probably little known to a young man named Wei Chen when he emigrated with his father to Philadelphia in the early 2000s. Wei Chen and his father thought only of pursuing the American dream, searching for that elusive happiness. But when Wei Chen enrolled in South Philadelphia High School, he found himself plopped right into the middle of a race war. In that school, black students and Asian students. And the black students every day, the beginning of school at the end of school, in between classes and in the hallways, were terrorizing those Asian students, mainly immigrants. The principals and the teachers were helpless to stop it. And so Wei Chen looked around, and he saw that his fellow Chinese and Asian students were scared even to show up at school, were thinking about not getting the very thing that had impelled their families to come to this country to get an American education. But Wei Chen was getting an American education. He was getting an education and a schooling in the color-coded legacy of resentment and race. He was getting an education in the way that life in an American city can obliterate all the nice and fine distinctions between citizen and alien and non-alien, between native and non-native. In those hallways at South Philly High School, there were only two categories, in and out. Around that same time, in a different America altogether, a woman named Antonella Packard was also learning about those two categories. Antonella Packard was something of a poster child for the new Republican Party. She was an immigrant from Columbia. She was a Mormon, Hispanic, small businesswoman in Salt Lake City, active in the state GOP. But one day, Antonella Packard heard about a group of Hispanic immigrants and activists staging a sit-in at the office in Salt Lake City of U.S. Senator, Republican Senator, Orrin Hatch. They were there to pressure Senator Hatch to support the DREAM Act, to give undocumented immigrants that promised path to citizenship. Well, the police responded to the sit-in with overwhelming force. They came in riot gear, they swept the kids aside, they detained one or two without any charges. And as Antonella Packard learned about this, she thought this was just wrong. She thought it was un-American. And so she began to speak out. She began to advocate for some of those kids. She began to do so even though it meant crossing Senator Hatch. And she began to pay a price. Republican elders first told her to, told her to pipe down. Then she was quietly removed from different party leadership positions. After a while, Antonella discovered that business at her small consulting firm in Salt Lake was drying up. And then she started getting prank calls, sneering at her, sneering at her by her maiden name, Antonella Romero. In, out, just that fast. Question seven. What are the two major political parties in the United States? Thank you. That is correct. Question eight. Name one problem that led to the Civil War. Slavery. 
That is correct. Thank you. Please discuss question nine with those around you. You will have one minute. What do we show loyalty to when we say the Pledge of Allegiance? You may begin. of Constitution Week in Philadelphia. I'm in a great vaulting glass and steel building called the National Constitution Center. Sitting next to me is Ben Franklin. He's getting ready for a speech. I just saw Thomas Jefferson somewhere around here. And outside are hundreds of men wearing revolutionary era uniforms, carrying the flags of their state militias, marching from Independence Hall. They are the sons of the American Revolution, lineal descendants of the founding generation. And we are all gathered to celebrate the 225th anniversary of the Constitution. One of the things about being a son of the American Revolution is that you have a ritual, you have a sense of tradition. Well, what these sons of the American Revolution don't know is that in a few minutes, some Chinese guy is going to lead them in a ceremony on citizenship that they didn't sign up for and aren't quite sure what to make of. Because for them, the sons and the daughters of the American Revolution, American citizenship is a simple birthright. What few, people don't, what few people know, however, is that it took a Chinaman to make American citizenship a birthright. In 1890, eight years after Chinese exclusion, a cook in San Francisco named Wang Kim Ark took a trip to China to visit relatives. When he came back to San Francisco, he was denied re-entry on the idea that he was Chinese subject to exclusion. Wang Kim Ark argued, or rather his white lawyers argued for him, that the language of the 14th Amendment was clearly in his favor, that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof shall be citizens of the United States. Wang Kim Ark's parents were Chinese nationals, and the law did bar more Chinese nationals from coming, but he himself, Wang Kim Ark, had been born on this soil. And so, to, he so, and so he took his case to court. His case moved up the federal courts and finally to the United States Supreme Court, which in the end ruled in his favor. Justice Horace Gray of the Supreme Court ruled in his favor not out of any love for the Chinese. He noted that Chinese exclusion was the law of the land. He pointed out that the 14th Amendment and its citizenship clause had been created not for mongoloids, but for the freed slaves after the Civil War. Nonetheless, the language of the citizenship clause of the amendment was plain. And to read it against the Chinese would be, in the words of the justice, to deny citizenship to thousands of persons of English, Scotch, Irish, German, or other European parentage who have always been considered and treated as citizens of the United States. And that wouldn't do. And so in Wang Kim Ark versus the United States, a race-blind principle of birthright citizenship was established. And it took a Chinaman to make it so. It took a Chinaman willing to seek a remedy in a court of law and to test whether this nation was indeed a nation of its word. Wen-Ho Lee, the nuclear scientist in Los Alamos, New Mexico, also fought the system. He had a phalanx of lawyers and activists and advocates after a while, and together, 
they won. 58 of the 59 charges against him were dropped, and he pled guilty only to a simple charge of mishandling classified documents. Later on, Win Ho Lee filed suit against the federal government for having leaked his name to the media, and in that civil suit, he won over one and a half million dollars. But this news got barely a whisper of attention compared to the clamor of xenophobia and fear that had attended his introduction to his countrymen. And Win Ho Lee never got an apology, not from the prosecutors or from his persecutors in the media. The closest thing he got came from the judge who ruled finally in his case, Judge James A. Parker of the United States District Court of New Mexico, appointed to the bench by President Ronald Reagan. And the judge said this, Dr. Lee, you're a citizen of the United States, and so am I. But there is a difference between us. You had to study the Constitution of the United States to become a citizen. Most of us are citizens by reason of the simple serendipitous fact of our birth here. So what I am now about to explain to you, you probably already know from having studied it, but I will explain it anyway. And the judge went on to explain just why that unjust detention and harassment by the administration was unlawful and wrong and, in his words, saddening. Dr. Lee, I tell you with great sadness that I feel I was led astray last December by the executive branch of our government. I am sad for you and your family because of the way in which you were kept in custody while you were presumed under the law to be innocent. And he apologized on behalf of the United States judiciary system. Back at South Philly High School, Wei Chen was no longer looking for apologies. He wanted redress, and he started taking action. Impelled in part by the immigrant spirit of converting powerlessness into power, but also fueled by his close study of the American civil rights movement and its strategy and its tactics, Wei Chen began to organize. He kept a little notebook documenting every single incident of violence and harassment. He began to collect the names and contact information of all the students of Chinese and Asian descent who were being harassed. He formed a Chinese Students Association at the school, and he started to organize them and to earn their trust. And he would need that trust because soon, at Wei Chen's direction, all those students, against the wishes of their parents, decided to boycott school. Together, they held the line. And more than that, Wei Chen and his fellow students brought a complaint, first against the principal of the school, not made out as a complaint about a race war, but made out as a complaint against a principal for having failed to create an environment of safe learning for children of all colors. And then they brought out a complaint against the district and got the national media to pay attention to this. And over time, that principal at South Philly was replaced, and the district changed its policies, and the violence subsided at South Philly High School. Today, a few years after graduation, Wei Chen works odd jobs so he can scrape up enough money to go to community college. But in the meantime, he teaches. He teaches other Chinese and Asian students how to stand up for themselves, how to find their voice, how to advocate, how to organize. He teaches people who are new to this country how to navigate and make their way here. In short, Wei Chen teaches citizenship. Mark Massey, back in Tulsa, was getting a crash course in citizenship. He knew he could not turn these men away, but he did not know what to do. First, Mark went to the Tulsa police, but he quickly realized the police were in cahoots with the factory owner. And so then he had only one choice. He began to help these men one by one, by twos and by fives, escape the pickle steel factory. He hid them in his house. He hid them in the barn on his property. Soon, Mark found out about another such factory in Louisiana, and he went there to help the workers there. Again, he tried to get the Baton Rouge police to help, and again, he found himself in jail for trespassing. But when Mark Massey got out of jail that one night, he was liberated. He was fearless, and from that point on, he worked tirelessly with advocates and activists and lawyers for these immigrants, and together, this group of people made it so that hundreds of these guest workers who had been abused in this indentured servitude were able to find a new life. Federal charges were brought against the indenturers, and the indenturers were punished. A good Samaritan is 
somebody who helps a passerby in need. This was more than good Samaritanship. This was full-on, full-body citizenship, risking life and limb. But to Mark Massey, who is as humble and quiet a man as you'll ever meet, whose Oklahoma voice is as American a sound as you'll ever hear, this wasn't civic heroism. This was simply the call of conscience. And it was conscience that kept Antonella Packard focused as she herself became an accidental activist for immigrant rights. In Utah, she began to, find, to organize and created the first state league of United Latin American citizens. And even though some of her Republican and conservative colleagues sneered at her still for what they called disloyalty, Antonella Packard remained active in the GOP. She helped create a grassroots network of Latino Republicans. Antonella is, in her own words, a free market, God-fearing, constitution-loving conservative, a true Republican. And by God, she was not going to let anybody tell her the right way to be a right-thinking American. Antonella Packard has never met Gerda Weissman Klein, that indomitable Holocaust survivor, who even today in her 80s speaks at naturalization ceremonies all around the country. But Antonella's choice to find her voice and to hold it, even if it meant standing apart from others, reminded me of a story that Gerda told me once about her early arrival in the United States and a dinner party she went to. At this dinner party, one of the guests started railing against President Truman, saying what a fiasco he was, saying the guy should be booted out of office, that he was running the country into the ground. Gerda nervously gripped Kurt's forearm. She looked around. Wasn't this man going to be punished? Wasn't he going to be reported to the national authorities? Weren't they, Gerda and Kurt, just by being at this dinner, guilty by association? As it turned out, this man had just been playing. He'd meant, in fact, to teach Gerda a lesson about the freedom to dissent in her new country and about never taking for granted that freedom. It was a lesson Gerda Weissman Klein never forgot. What is freedom for? When is loyalty dissent? And when is dissent loyalty? These are the kinds of questions that animate the conscience of an American. Question 10. What did Susan B. Anthony do? Please. She fought for the woman's right to vote. Thank you. That is an allowable answer. Question 11. What is the name of the President of the United States now? <laughs> yes, please. In front row. That is correct. Thank you very much. Please discuss tw question 12 with those seated around you. What is one responsibility that is only for United States citizens? You may begin. I've never been very much into genealogy. 
Maybe that's because in my own family, I can't trace things back much more than three generations. My parents migrated here from China via Taiwan. Their parents before them migrated all across a war-torn China. And their parents, my great-grandparents, I know almost nothing about. Beyond that, the thread disappears entirely. This is pretty common for immigrant families, the sense that your history is obscured from view. But even if it's common, it's still uncommonly strange to feel so afloat in history. Maybe that's why all my life I've been consumed with the idea of lineages real and imagined. I've always wanted to attach myself to something greater than myself. When I was a kid, it was imagined lineages like those of Starfleet and Starfleet Academy and the USS Enterprise. As I grew older, it was lineages and traditions like those of the United States Marine Corps. But no tradition has had a greater claim on my heart and have I wanted more to claim than that simply of the United States as a singular entity, one nation, indivisible. And not just claim, but reclaim. And by inserting myself into it, to redefine it. My mother, in many small ways, shows me how. In the years of her retirement, in the years of her widowhood, she's managed to become completely self-sufficient in everyday life and completely self-actualized as a citizen. She follows public affairs and politics with a passion. She reads the Washington Post every day from cover to cover and watches Charlie Rose every night. She joyfully debates and discusses anything in the news with anybody she comes upon. But more than that, she joins. She joins clubs, homeowners associations, alumni clubs, neighborhood groups, community organizations. She mentors. In a word, my mother earns it. She earns her citizenship. And that makes me think, what if all of us had to earn it? What if none of us could get citizenship as a matter of mere birthright? What if we had to show contribution to community and some form of participation? Because, you know, all around us are citizens today who have the status but do not live like citizens, and non-citizens who do. I know an illegal alien named Jose. Now picture him for a moment. Let me tell you about Jose. He's not Mexican. He didn't sneak here under the border in the dead of night. He knows more than 10 words of English. He doesn't cut my lawn. Jose came to the United States from the Philippines when he was age two. He was brought here by his parents who came on a legitimate visa and they left him here to be raised by his grandparents. And Jose grew up in America, an all-American kid in an all-American city, going to all-American school, singing in an all-American choir. And when Jose went to get his driver's license, that all-American rite of passage, the woman at the DMV quietly slid back his form of identification, and told him he should go home. It was only then that Jose learned from his grandparents that he was undocumented, illegal, an alien. Jose kept this a secret to all but a few people, some teachers, his choir teacher, some mentors, and he went on with his life. Jose went on to college. He went on to become a journalist. He went on to write for the Washington Post and was part of the team that won a Pulitzer Prize for covering that awful massacre at Virginia Tech. But all this time, the weight of his secret grew heavier and heavier. And so finally, two years ago, Jose decided to come out as undocumented. And he did so with style in a cover story in the New York Times Magazine. Jose Antonio Vargas, undocumented. After that, he founded an organization called Define American not only to give voice to other undocumented immigrants, but to spark conversations in this country about what it means, in fact, for all of us to be an American and what it is that, as Americans, we should feel rightfully entitled to. So here I was in Philadelphia, one or two miles from Wei Chen's high school, two days before the 225th anniversary of the Constitution, standing before two or three hundred sons and daughters of the American Revolution, now, if you're a son or daughter of the American Revolution, you have to have some serious genealogy. You also have to have a serious Revolutionary-era wardrobe. And more than anything else, you have to have a serious commitment to preserving history, to extending the line and keeping it alive. This is conservatism in the most literal sense, conserving the mark and the meter 
of the original. And in our country's culture, all transience and impermanence, there's something to be admired and applauded about that kind of dedication. And yet, citizenship is not a museum piece. It is not an object to be beheld and revered. It is something to be lived and revivified by the new as well as the old. New voices speaking the old scripture. New blood coursing through old vessels. I was in Philadelphia to conduct something called a sworn-again America ceremony. When naturalizing immigrants come to the U.S., if you've ever been to one of those incredibly moving naturalization ceremonies, you know they have to take a test, they have to swear an oath, they have to raise their hand, they have to be a part of a grand ceremony. And I thought, why don't we create something like that for all Americans? Why don't we create a civic ritual for everybody, citizens of long standing as well as new immigrants, for us all to recommit, to renew our vows to this country, to become sworn again. And so we created a ceremony. And that simple ceremony begins with the promise that this country makes to itself every day. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These truths don't start out self-evident, and they're not self-enacting. It takes us to make them so, to live up every day to the American proposition. It is for us here to be dedicated to the great task before us, that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. What does it mean to govern ourselves? It means to take responsibility, to not wait around for someone else to solve our problems. It means attending to the content not only of our character, but of our citizenship. I have a dream today. I have a dream that all of God's children will be able to sing with new meaning. My country, tis of thee, sweet land of liberty, of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrim's pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring. That promise, that proposition comes not from on high, but it comes from inside us, from our hearts, from we the people. So let us now make our voices heard. Please rise and raise your right hand. Repeat after me. I pledge to be an active American. I pledge to be an active American. To show up for others. To show up for others. To govern myself to help govern my community. To govern myself to help govern my community. I recommit myself to my country's creed. I recommit myself to my country's creed. To cherish liberty as a responsibility. To cherish liberty as a responsibility. I pledge to serve and to push my country. I pledge to serve and to push my country. When right to be kept right, when wrong to be set right. When right to be kept right, when wrong to be set right. Wherever my ancestors and I were born, I claim America. Wherever my ancestors and I were born, I claim America. And I pledge to live like a citizen. And I pledge to live like a citizen. Thank you. You may be seated. Congratulations. We're all sworn again Americans now. And so now the only question is, how will we live up to those vows? With all due respect to the sons and daughters of the American Revolution, and they do deserve our respect for keeping a flame lit across 14 generations, I too am a son of the Revolution. I too have a lineage, and it too has a moral imperative for liberty, which is not just freedom, but is also responsibility. In my civic family tree, are icons like Lincoln and the Roosevelts and King, living men like Wei Chen and Mark Massey, living women like Gerda Weissman Klein, Antonella Packard, and my mother, people who aren't even citizens like Jose Antonio Vargas and who live yet like some of the greatest citizens this country has ever known. What is it that holds all of us 
so far-flung and disparate together. Nothing more than a creed. And yes, that is a creed that time and time again this country has failed to live up to. But there it stands, challenging us to do better, pushing us to earn the title citizen. If I may riff off the great Langston Hughes, America is ever in a state of not quite yet and always will be. America is forever in the midst of redemption, which means it is forever in sin. Redemption is messy, halting. The betrayals of the promise, constant and unending. And yet the arrivals keep on coming every hour of every day. New Americans dreaming of becoming citizens, old Americans seeing their lives with new eyes. Look around. We move within a matrix of intangible, countless American dreams. We touch chords of belief and belonging and myth and truth. Together, we weave our dreams into a web of citizenship that, yes, is sometimes all contradiction and convolution, but other times makes just the kind of sense that makes you think this nation was indeed touched by providence. So look around. Listen for those dreams. Introduce yourself to your fellow Americans. I am Eric Liu, citizen. Who are you? <laughs>